This is Identity at the Center. If it has anything to do with IAM, this is the go-to podcast. Now your hosts, Jim McDonald and Jeff Stedman. Welcome to the Identity at the Center podcast. I'm Jeff and that's Jim. Hey, Jim. Hey, Jeff. How are you? Not so bad yourself? Good. I mean, we're here at Authenticate. Fantastic conference. The Expo Hall's been really nice to have gotten an opportunity to drop by a few booths, including the Forge Arc booth. And, you know, I got that. I said, <laughs> what I said to them was, how many people have stopped by and asked what's happening with Forge Rock and Pain? It's like, yeah, pretty much everybody. So, what'd they say? Um, they don't know. I don't want to go into the whole thing here, or, you know, but it was. It was good, and I think we have commitment to have some people come back and talk to us, so we will do that when they're ready to do that. That's always appreciated. How's the swag game in there? You know, I'm not... My early days of going to IT conferences, I wanted everything. Mm-hmm. Like, I would go around with, oh, yeah. like, a... The shopping carts, and you see that RSA bag, right like, in the hallways, yeah. Trick-or-treat, mm-hmm. you know, can I have my whatever T-shirt or stress ball? Sliding camera cover, which I hate. Other side camera yeah. covers, yeah. Hey, let's put this thing that ruins you your ability to close your laptop. That's a great idea. Yeah, they're fantastic. <laughs> and then there was the um, the dongle for charging yeah. any type of phone, even yep. though most people just have one type of phone. I find that actually handy because I have so many different devices I'm traveling with. But yes, that was over. Yeah, you don't need eight of them. Though. Yeah. Um, so swag game, we're not sure yet. I have to go through. I haven't really taken a walkthrough yet, other than. To Look, get to our little room, we're, we're behind the conference. Did you ever notice as you walk the conference hall floor, some of the booths have different levels of swag. Mm-hmm. So I think if it's like you just want the entry-level swag, it's like you pop one balloon with a dart. But if you want the next level, you've got to pop three balloons with a dart. And then there's like the major swag, which really means that you're going to spend a million dollars with them. I don't know. What are you talking about? <laughs> go out there and I'll, okay. I'll point it out. Basically, is there like a specific vendor that's doing that? Well, I did see one vendor okay. that had like a um, top level swag, oh, which was a, gotcha. like a packing bag. Gotcha. One of those like fancy bags where you put your clothes in and then put it in your luggage. Oh, like so a you packing cube? I, like, I was like, well, what do you have to do to get that one? Because other <laughs> over here you have these camera covers. I think they're for everybody. Right. Well, maybe. they let you scan your badge and you trade up your email in exchange for a thousand emails from a from BD person to you get the camera trying to get over. Yeah. yeah, but one thing I've noticed also now, I'm not out here telling people not to let them scan your badge, mm-hmm. but some places, some vendors will scan your badge and then they will call you on the phone. And what? You start getting these personal phone calls. Criminal. And like, Never call me on the phone. Do not call me on my the phone. My phone is not for phone calls. You're not my father. <laughs> Or my mother, I do not want phone calls from mm-hmm. you. Yep. You can send something to my email, hopefully my personal email, hopefully my Hotmail account <laughs> that I opened 25 years ago. Yeah, that's, that's, that's good. That's good. Um, yeah, so I gotta go, I, I'm judging conferences, as you know, based on two things, swag and the quality of cookies. I have yet to see cookies, but we did have custom donuts last night. We talked about it in a previous episode. Um, we'll see what the swag situation looks like. Um, do you want to talk about Microsoft? I thought we were going to talk about dessert the whole time, but okay. I'm game. Let's do it. <laughs> um, we probably shouldn't talk about them behind their back. So why don't we invite Pam Dingle, Director of Identity Standards at Microsoft to the show. Welcome, Pam. Well, hello. Thank you for having me. This is a conversation that has been a long time coming. I feel like we've been like two ships in the night passing through conferences. Never actually, I don't think, met until 
behind stage <laughs> last night. Uh, as you were coming off, we were going up. And uh, it's great to have you here. Um, I know that you've been in the space for a while, but one of the things we do as ritual for first-time guests is understand the origin story of our identity superheroes. Like how I did that. Can you tell us, how did you get into the identity space? Is it something that you chose or did it choose you? Yes. How many hours do we have? We have uh, five and a half. Okay, no no problem, no problem. (laughs) You might want to speed me up. Like the little chipmunk, you know. Uh, No, I got into identity quite a long time ago. Uh, I started off, so I, I was born in Canada. I am a Canadian. And I went to, you know, a local university, got a computer science degree there. And so I was working right out of school as a system administrator for an oil company in Calgary, Canada, and um, ended up getting snapped up by a a dot-com darling. So that tells you how long ago this was. It was 1999, and they actually sent me to California for the first time in my entire life to do training with Netscape, again with the aging, you know, uh, metaphors, but uh, but I ended up training up in directory services then, and I started to work in what they call middleware, which at the time was mail servers, web servers, and directory servers. And it was just, you know, we were the imported Canadian talent because it was the dot-com boom and you could not get anyone to do anything. Uh, everyone was all taken, shall we say. And so they used to f- fly us in and we used to hang out in computer rooms and install middleware. And I didn't think of it, you know, the mail servers, web servers, director servers, whatever. And then uh, I ended up moving to a consulting firm that sent me to a conference. And this was 2001. And I went to the Burton Group conference, the Catalyst conference, which, you know, some of your listeners might have attended. I've been to Catalyst. Yes. The highlight for me was it's, it's on the Bay in San Diego. Location is perfect. That will get me to a conference. Oh, yes. Yes. Well, this one was in San Francisco. It was at the Hilton in San Francisco. And it changed my life. I mean, it was people who were debating why things happened and talking about the consequences of these implementations and, and, you know, why it was important for people to have good experiences logging in. And uh, for whatever reason, I got there and... I did not like what people were saying on the stage. And so I stood up and asked questions in the conference. And I asked question after question. And at the end of that conference, Jamie Lewis, who ran Burton Group at the time, said, hey, you should present a talk. You should apply to talk next year. And for me, that was the light bulb going off. You know, I had loved the experience. I got invested in what identity management even was at that conference. But the idea that I could be part of that community just lit me up like a, you know, like a firework. And so I spent the whole year excited and all ready. And I applied to speak at the conference and they rejected me. <laughs> they rejected me. And then the Please next year. Please submit this so we can say no. Sorry ex- for laughing at exa- that. No, no. It was, I mean, it wasn't funny at the time. I was devastated. But uh, four years straight, they rejected me. <laughs> so just for anyone who is listening, who wants to speak at one of these identity conferences, just know that the people you see up there who are doing, you know, who just look like it's a piece of cake and they were born to it, they, they weren't. They had to get rejected and they had to work their way through all of those same issues. And so that really kicked me off. Uh, I ended up 
moving from Calgary, Canada to go work for Ping Identity and in the office of the CTO. And that's what got me really connecting to customers, specializing in federation, uh, got me into the standards world. And of course, that's where I am now. So I, you know, I worked in the office of the CTO there and then transitioned to Microsoft as Director of Identity Standards. So what does that mean, Director of Identity Standards? It's the best job ever. <laughs> Absolutely the best job ever. So I have a, a highly skilled team of folks who work in various different standards bodies, including IETF, W3C, the Decentralized Identity Foundation, you name it. We go in and we try to write the standards in conjunction with our engineering teams that we think will power our platform for the next 10 years. And so that can involve standards like uh, OAuth, OpenID Connect. Uh, right now we're working on OpenID uh, for BC, which is the sort of the umbrella for a lot of the decentralized integrations with OpenID Connect. So that's a really big one. We're working in the International Standards Organization on ISO 18013-5. Do you like how I can just rattle that <laughs> off? Uh, which is mobile driver's licenses, which we think is gonna have a huge impact going forward in the future. And uh, yeah, the, you know, the goal is to understand in advance how the world will need to connect and then find the ways to do that securely. And of course, we collaborate with everyone else in the industry. So Microsoft is in there, but also all of the other big identity players are trying to accomplish the same thing. You should see my notes that I just made as you're talking. So my first identity conference was 06, Digital ID World, right? And it was Kim Cameron on stage yes. talking about um, the, the laws of identity, right? And I was like, revolutionary. And that's where I got sucked in. I was like, whoa, this isn't just, you know, plug this into there. It, this is like philosophical layered on top of technology. And these guys are trying to solve the problems of the world with. So anyway, I see how you got sucked in. One thing I noticed in that conference there, and this is 2006, right? You said you went no one. There were very few women. Yes. You're kind of, that triggered to me, you're kind of a trailblazer, you know? I don't want to make you feel weird by saying that, but it's the truth. I mean, there were less than 5% of the audience. And I, I still think it's pretty lopsided when you go to conferences, but I mean, night and day difference now versus 20 years ago, right? It really is a night and day difference. I mean, I... I yeah, there were often 10 women and I knew all their names. We all knew each other, still know each other for that matter. Um, a lot of them are still in identity. As a matter. Like once you're in, you stick. And now you're right, it's much, much more balanced. And I love that. Um, I do work, do a lot of volunteer work for the Women in Identity organization. Mm -hmm. Of and which we are members. Yes, that's fantastic. <laughs> And uh, yeah, it's really fun to see. I mean, there's a lot more opportunity, but the thing that I was lacking at that time, I really did feel isolated. I was almost always the only woman in the room. And you, you get used to that. I mean, part of my consulting background, which was that sort of first job, beats it into you. You have to be the authoritative voice in a room. And so you figure out how to do that. Um, but I don't know, I mean, Right now at Microsoft, the identity division in Microsoft has an amazing amount of diversity to it. And so I am almost never the only woman in any meeting I attend. And I never knew that to be grateful for that. 
until I had it. Well, bravo to you because somebody had to be, you know, the first, right? Or I'm not even saying you're the first, but trailblazers like the role that you play, like yourself, uh, so important to what's happened. Um, let's kind of get into some of the, you know, what's going on with Microsoft today. I think I've been a Microsoft person since my original IT certification was in Windows NT4 desktop, right? So I've kind of been a Microsoft person, but I've kind of gotten away from that with being in identity management because Microsoft solutions traditionally hadn't been the leading ones. And I think a lot of them, a lot of it was around uh, very proprietary solutions for like access management, for example, just think of um, WS Fed, right? And, but it seems like there's been a major shift, major shift at Microsoft in tor towards its stance on standards, specifically the ones I have my eye on are the identity standards. But to you, what, what's the story behind that? Yeah, I agree. And I will say that I've only worked for Microsoft for five years. So uh, I kind of came in in the, the golden days, right, where, where that stance had changed and there was investment. I do think the fact that they hired a director of identity standards was in part a, an expression of the fact that they could see that this was a, a serious requirement. Um, so I can't really speak about, you know, why that change occurred because I came in after, uh, but it is certainly the case now that we very much recognize that nobody wants to be locked in. That's that right. is the bottom line. Nobody wants to be locked in. And so knowing that you can bring in the tools you need at the time you want and connect them all together um, is the reason why people feel comfortable signing up for some of these technologies. One of the, thing, the thoughts I have is moving, uh, violating standards, if you will, is not just coming up with a new standard or ignoring a standard, it's changing a standard. Let's just add an attribute to SAML. Let's just make it a little, like, tweak it a little bit. Do you talk to us about how it works at Microsoft? Is the, are you like the traffic cop? Like, no, 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 no. <laughs> well, if anyone tries to suggest we change SAML, then, yeah, I mean, there is no changing SAML. You can True. absolutely try. I mean, the, the real truth is that the, f the forces that are applied are almost immutable forces. I, for, for example, SAML is a perfect example. That, that stuff is old. It works so well. Uh, but nobody's going to go in and tweak those implementations unless there's a real business reason to do it. And so, um, you know, there's, a, there's almost a time to value uh, back and forth that you have to do. I mean, can you try to change SAML? Yes. Uh, will you get adoption in any kind of uh, size or anytime soon? No. And so, uh, so what we can do versus what we can do and gain adoption is really, the, that's the metric that my team often talks through. And it's easier with newer things. For example, the, um, the decentralized world right now, we have a lot of flexibility. And, uh, or, or for example, uh, another one is proof of possession. So that's a specification that just ratified. And uh, one of my team members was very heavily involved in that. And they, it was actually incredibly valuable. We took all of our knowledge of what we're doing in our, in our um, token protection work, right? So token protection is a feature of, um, of the Entra suite, but, um, but the 
Depop spec utilized a bunch of those learnings, right, from when the engineers realized something couldn't work, right? So there is this, there's, if you do it right, you're helping um, all of this knowledge make its way to the public world. Um, but yeah, if you do it wrong, you end up making things that no one will adopt or making things that, uh, that you know, come out after your product has already put something in. And, and that's the big thing, right? You have to know that um, these things happen on cycles. You release it once, so you're not going to go and back and tune it six months later. So um, there's a huge problem there because the standards come out in advance. But if they don't, if you're you know, developing the standards at the same time you're developing the software, right, you really do have to have a tight, tight coupling. How do you make the decision of which standards to throw support behind and which ones are maybe it's not the right time yet? Right. That's an excellent question. Um, a lot of it is product alignment. So, you know, you can create a standard for something that you have no plans to implement, but yeah, it's, and it's a lovely idea. And it certainly has happened. Sometimes you're so far ahead in your vision. Um, but yeah, you, you need to be able to justify what you do and why you do it. Um, we certainly do. Uh, my boss is Alex Simons, who, by the way, should really come on this show. You need to open invite. To invite. Come on, Alex. In. Um, but you know, it's really in many ways Alex's vision because he he runs the product management office. So he's you know he's working with the rest of our executive team to decide where our our large priorities are. But the other thing is we can't just we can't just lead just because it's convenient for us doesn't mean that anyone else cares. And so, there, so the real judgment is what kind of momentum exists? Is there community momentum? Because if there's community momentum and we're not ready, we will likely still participate because otherwise, otherwise the standard gets developed and we don't have input, right? So that momentum piece is what's a really interesting uh, question. Like for example, right now, authorization, huge. It's so big, right? It's, uh, you know, everyone's interested suddenly and I, for anyone who's been in the industry for a while, I mean, authorization has had its ups and downs, mm -hmm. shall we say. You know, I don't know if either of you remember DSML. Yeah, very vaguely. Right. I think it came out on parchment. Yeah, it might have. <laughs> it might have. Um, and of course, Xacmel. And so, um, so that's an example of something where, you know, we have interest, but there's also momentum. And that momentum may grow faster than what we would normally try to push it into being. But you, you got to run with it. You got to roll with the flow. Well, we're here at the FIDO Authenticate Conference. So passkeys, what's Microsoft's stance on passkeys? We are huge supporters of passkeys. Um, we have been working, you know, for quite some time on the ideas. You know, we're working in all of this in the technical working group and within the WebAuthn working group in W3C on that. Um, Tim Capali is, is the team member on our team who's really shepherding that. Uh, yeah, we think it's really important. We still completely support FIDO2 credentials of all kinds, right? So it's not like we have shifted our interest. We are expanding our interest to make sure that synced pass keys are something that can work. Security keys are something that can work. You know, platform authenticators are something that can work. So we see those three channels as being a way that we can cover a ton of the population and have them have a phishing resistant credential. Is it easier or harder having such a huge install base 
to do stuff like that? Oh, it's harder. It's absolutely harder. I mean, the, the, because the platform is so critical, right? The platform is what make passkeys a phishing resistant credential. You have to have that proximity element to be able to, um, to prevent secrets from being copied, right? Um, so, so yes, changing the platform is a non-trivial thing and, right. and it's expensive and it's, uh, it takes a lot of cross company commitment to do that. But the great thing is that our Windows team, I'm not on the Windows team, I'm in the iDNA group, the identity and network access group, but uh, you know, we have very strong commitment from the Windows 11 team um, on all sorts of security related pieces. And we also have a huge amount of support from our internal IT group, right? Uh, which of course is on the front lines of protecting, uh, you know, not just Microsoft as a company, but Microsoft as a product and the platform that we represent. And so, you know, so there's sort of a virtuous cycle there of uh, needing, needing phishing resistant authentication just for ourselves, but also wanting to enable it for everyone else. I think one of the interesting factors is that Microsoft is so global, so many product lines, it's like, it has to work for everyone. So you have cultural challenges, but you also have like disability challenges. I mean, it's like the government's problem, but even larger. Yeah, I agree. And this is why I really strongly believe that security keys are absolutely critical for the passkey ecosystem because the security keys are the pluggable piece, right? If you platform authenticators like Windows Hello and Face ID on Apple, those things are what are gonna enable the massive part of the distribution curve to be successful. Uh, but there is no reason why you can't create a security key that addresses a certain disability, right? Or a security key that innovates incredibly and takes us to the next level. So without that pluggability and that ability to, uh, to not have to completely depend on the interface of the platform, I think we would be limited in how we could innovate in the future. Can you give an example of what an alternative security key might look like? Because I know Microsoft has spent a lot of time on hardware and things like that, like Xbox has specific controllers, for example, that are built with that population in mind. What would a security key look like in that? Well, I can only tell you personally. I, you know, I'm not aware of, of the different projects that are actually officially going on, but I will say I did buy an Xbox adaptive controller and the little button kit. Mm -hmm. And I do have this dream that one day you could actually, mm -hmm. for example, um, you know, click a certain set of buttons in a certain sequence to unlock your security key hardware and, and send a secure credential. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, I'm not aware of anything official, but yes, wouldn't right. it be it's not cool? A product announcer, <laughs> That's right. But if anyone wants to, you know, try right. it, let me know. Yeah, Microsoft has made a lot of, um, a lot of investment in those ad adoptions of those adaptable methods. The Surface line has been with that. I have a new Surface book, or sorry, Surface Laptop Studio 2 at home. Right, the haptic feedback and being able to change the mouse pad based on your own ability to sense the touches. It's like a, no duh, right? Like, why didn't we think about that before? Yeah, it's so true. <laughs> and I find it impressive. Um, I wanna switch over to Microsoft Entra because every time I hear the word Microsoft Entra, <laughs> it's always some news announcement of, okay, what do they do now? 
Um, there was some recent, um, you know, announcements made and rebranding or name changes. I'm never, ne I'm never quite sure what the announcement is. <laughs> so please take this with all the love in my heart. What is Microsoft Entra doing? Who's this for? All right. So Microsoft Entra is the, is the identity product portfolio that we own. So we, we basically got into an issue where Azure Active Directory was our brand, but directory was in the name. And the problem is we have expanded so much farther out from directories that we needed a way to sort of start differentiating between the different things within the identity portfolio that we delivered. And so uh, what we ended up doing is Entra is the, is the umbrella portfolio. And within that, we have Entra ID, which is the original Azure Active Directory. So that's where users are stored and groups and all the amazing things that happen in any directory. And then we have expanded into the, the set of other products, which are uh, the things you're hearing about. So for example, there's Entra ID governance. So that's your IGA uh, tool. I don't want to list them all because you all would have your eyes roll back in your head and you'd fall asleep. Um, however, the, you know, things like Keem, so we have a cloud um, entitlement management piece. Um, we have Entra Verified ID, which is our decentralized identity offering. And so the idea is that these things can now have their own identities. They can grow and have features added and people can easily differentiate, um, but also have the, the sense that we are integrating everything that it is all part of a family. So my experience with Microsoft Entra so far has been if you're in the Microsoft ecosystem, it's a great tool, right? There's a lot of capabilities. Uh, when you start to go away from the Microsoft ecosystem, that there are some gaps there. Is that a fair criticism of Microsoft Entra as a whole? Is that something that's being addressed? Or are there things that I'm just not aware of that maybe it's just a bad rap and it's not warranted? Well, we're definitely working hard. I, I mean, we have heard that criticism before. Uh, we are definitely working hard to make sure that it isn't actually true. So, you know, we are obviously standards forward, as standards forward as we can be. So we integrate uh, via federation, we integrate provisioning via skim, we integrate in, uh, you know, we're working on shared signals right now. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're making sure that we are modular and, and that goes a long way towards that. Um, and we are a standalone identity product but we also are the backbone for the entire Microsoft platform. So we serve identity for Azure and for Office and for Dynamics, all of that as well. So there, there's a balance there. Um, but the way that we're really working on expanding, um, you know, we can already federate to any application out there. So that piece is done. We can have folks federate into us. So we have, you know, folks like Duo and Okta and Ping have always been able to federate into the platform. And then um, the, the interesting piece right now where we're heavily expanding is in the multi-cloud area, right? So we can now govern uh, GCP, right? Or Google Cloud resources, Amazon resources, and that sort of stuff. So yes, we are, you know, we are moving in many directions. Yeah. So you're taking on the identity governance mm -hmm. and administration. That is a big nut to crack. Do you guys have a roadmap? Um, are you planning to kind of build it with the existing tools? I'm assuming you wouldn't be able to tell me even if you were going out to acquire something, but I mean, that's a, 
a multi-year roadmap to get to kind of best of breed? Yeah, it is. It's definitely a multi-year roadmap. Um, I, you know, we what we're trying to do is begin um, or center ourselves, I guess is the right way to say, with things being built in and inherent. So, for example, um, historically in governance, there were concepts of access certifications and access reviews. And so um, we are working more on the self-service side of the house. Um, we have a concept called access packages, which I think is really a useful concept, not, not just for Microsoft, but for anyone, right? Which is groupings of resources that people can self-service request that we can then manage. And we can also do uh, machine learning anomaly detection on, right? So, um, you know, the way that we think this is going to work is, is to be able to, to keep that governance centralized be able to tell what's happening no matter how far out your governance world goes, but do it with simple concepts. So, you know, we aren't, to my knowledge, am I going to get fired for saying this? Maybe. <laughs> I don't think so. You know, Let us know. We'll cut it I'll, off. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll beat this out if we need to. Delete this. <laughs> no. Um, you know, to my knowledge, it isn't our plan to go and make sure we're doing role mining in every single every part. Feature, we have partners yeah. who are really good at that. And we love our partners. And so, yeah, what we're trying to do is make sure that there is an intuitive way for people to perform anomaly detection, which is really what governance is. We never talk about it that way. And we talk about governance as, it's, as if it's this sort of salty yeah. outside thing, right? Like reports and, and all that. But it's not. It's anomaly detection. It's finding risk in your organization. And so, you know, we think that there's just a ton to do there that is maybe great value. I love what you said there about, we love our partners. The idea that can be a platform, people, companies can build solutions that plug in. To me, that's the fastest way to provide a solution and yep. to expand the platform. You know, I was at Octane two weeks ago, and they're talking a lot about the roadmap for uh, workforce identity cloud. And they, it's just a very big roadmap. And can it be achieved by developing it themselves? I think so. So take a lot of R&D dollars though. And, you know, I think if it was kind of platform focused and people could build the solutions, the customer still gets what they need. Right. And the nice thing is then you can build things that are specific to your vertical, specific to your needs, right? If, if your success is dependent on us adding a bespoke feature, that's not a good way to go, right? Uh, this just isn't how a platform generally works. And so, yes, I mean, our partner ecosystem is how we manage to, to have everyone get what they need without that, without the massive backlog of, you know, tiny features for this or for that. Yeah, for this industry or for that industry. Mm -hmm. I mean, when you start breaking down what an IGA can do and for each different industry, right. it can be enormous. Yeah, you and I were talking about this, I think, a few episodes ago, where we would start if we were going to build an IM product. And I think we settled on IGA as like, that's where we would start because it feels like that's the hardest thing to do because we already have standards for authentication. Right. We already have, you know, ideas around how to do authorizations and things like that. But IGA is just this big, hairy beast. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I honestly feel like. I'm not trying to dictate what your roadmap should be, but if yes, you want please, my suggestion. Please tell Microsoft what they should be doing. <laughs> and here's what Microsoft should do. Um, 
Now, I think the identity administration, like the request approve workflow, is like, you know, there's so much already there in traditional Azure AD that does what people need, but the ability to kind of like go through and either self-service request or manager request access, to me, that's one of the areas that people want the most. Yeah, I completely agree. I, th I mean, I think this is where the machine learning comes in um, of trying to understand what people are trying to do and give them whatever ceremony they need to be successful, right? And understand it in advance. I think that's, you know, one of the ways that this industry is gonna innovate in the next three years. Um, I would say though, to me, the most difficult thing for our, for the industry's future right now is actually ITDR, the uh, Identity Threat Detection and Response. Yes. Uh, because you have to have signal. You have to have signal to operate on. And um, there is, and th that signal can be extremely low level signal, right? You have a ton of data to work with. We have so much, <laughs> but we, we do. And, um, and we're working very hard on leveraging it. I mean, you know, the number that I think we're giving is 65 trillion signals or something insane like that. That's it? That's it? What, just a trillion? Psh, I don't even know what comes after a trillion. Do you know? Quadrillion. A qu I guess a quadrillion. Uh, I'll just ask Bing with uh, chat GPT or OpenAI integration, right? How's that for a plug? Or Bing. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, who is Entra for? And more importantly, that sets me up for my follow-up question is, who is Entra not for? Ooh, that's a really good question. Also possibly a question that could get me fired, but I'm going <laughs> to go for it. What the heck? Um, so I think Entra... Entra has a really interesting dual role, in my opinion, right? Um, the great thing about Entra is that you can stand it up with almost nothing else. If you're a small company, you can stand up Entra. That, you know, there's a free tier that you can stand up that is going to get you single sign-on. It's going to get you managing your users. And so, uh, you know, so I think that if you're someone who's willing to... Uh, embrace that idea who wants some of this rigor you can have that rigor even if you're a tiny customer and of course if you want premium features you still have to pay for premium features right however um, what you don't have to be is a big customer because it's a platform and everything is generally self-service so and there's a lot of community and you can go in and learn what's going on so there's um, i think the accessibility for a smaller company is great uh, I do think that the, there's a lot of complexity to running any large-scale identity management uh, enterprise. I mean, I think you both know, you're both living that every single day. It's difficult for anyone to understand how to deploy access packages and access certifications and all of these incredibly complex concepts. Uh, however, what Entra is very, very good at is the top end, right? We work a lot with um, large multinational companies. Um, we work a lot with companies who need to integrate their identity world with their security world. And that's, you know, that's another place where Entra uh, can be extremely valuable. Um, but generally speaking, you know, we, we are, we suit those professional, you know, cases. If, if you have a CISO and you have a, an identity management dedicated team, then Entra is a really good option for you. 
So, in my day job, I'm an identity strategist, but to stay sharp, one of the things I do is I get heavily involved in a lot of our projects. I got involved with a B2C Azure AD implementation over the past year plus. Mm -hmm. The product's really good. One thing I noticed when Drolla Entra basically said, okay, we're not calling it Azure AD anymore, but the subtext to it was B2C is not affected by this. So it's still B2C Azure AD or Azure AD B2C, right. I think is more rightly put. Why is that? Why didn't you just roll that in as well? Um, we So B2C is considered a legacy product at this time because we actually have a new rolled out product in preview called Entra uh, External ID. So, we, you know, we are still supporting B2C. Obviously, we're still working a ton with customers on it. But Entra um, External ID will is our sort of future direction in that case. And it's, you know, they obviously do much of the same thing, but we have changed some of our fundamental architecture that we think is going to really benefit people moving forward. One of the things, one of the, I don't know if you would call it a feature, because I think it's core to the product is the graph API. Mm -hmm. And building that on top of that, building B2C on top of the graph API just opened it up to, it can do whatever you want. Yep. I thought that was really cool. I wanted to call that out. Yeah, it's interesting that, I mean, what it's really good for both ID, uh, external ID and, and B2C are amazing because everything is programmatic. So, you, you know, you don't have to be in heavily working with any, a UI if you don't want to. You can automate everything because a lot of our largest customers, they're not touching this thing with a 10-foot pole, right, without, like, there isn't, there's no chance for typos. They have this thing regimented. They do rollouts in, you know, in change management windows. And so, you know, so the automation piece is a huge value for our customers. Um, and that, you know, that's, that's a size thing at some point, right? How, um, how much of a machine is your re retail website? That kind of thing. Can we talk a little bit about AI? Because I feel like Microsoft has made a lot of investment, obviously, from an AI perspective with OpenAI. Right. Um, I've been a big fan of it for a while now. I think it's captured the minds and maybe the hearts of a lot of people. Um, Bing was very much early on in adopting that. I don't want to get into like product, but I'm just curious, where do you see AI fitting into what you do from an identity perspective right. for Microsoft? Right. Uh, yeah, it's really exciting. It's very exciting. Um, I am not the authority. So, you know, I, what I say I believe is true. Others may disagree, but uh, where we're really excited in identity about AI is that, um, you know, we've had machine learning for a long time. Uh, I don't know, maybe as long as 10 years, something like that, where we're going in, we're doing the trend analysis, we're doing the, the detection of anomalies. All of that stuff has been around for a long time. Where the generative AI comes in is being able, in some sense, to put a face on it. So, uh, you know, sense making is a huge problem in the industry right now. We're churning out the, tr the signals, we're churning out the data, but it doesn't help if we can't make sense of it. And that's really where the gen AI piece that, you know, that, that you know, we have generally branded as co-pilot becomes really interesting because now we can take all of that amazing trend analysis and use interactive conversation and interactive questioning to help people make use of it. 
So that's, you know, that's, for me at least, that's the really exciting piece. And of course, Copilot is a very intentional branding decision, not, not for sale, selling stuff, but because it is not meant to replace people. It is meant to help people. And so it's really all about people working with the AI to learn and to grow and to leverage rather than, you know, the machine taking over. I do think that that is a rather brilliant branding of Copilot. Um, did your definition of AI changed change when you saw what large language models and generative could do? Or have you been, yeah, that's just sort of the next evolution. Yeah, for me, it was a revelation. Mm -hmm. I had no idea. Like I, I am absolutely um, the person who would say AIML mm -hmm. as if it was yeah. one, right? AIML this. You're not alone. I think everybody that. was doing that. I was doing that. Right. And then I saw the demo from OpenAI. I was like, what? Right. <laughs> like that is going to change things. And I think even Microsoft has jumped into having, um, you know, organizations be able to run their own large language models in their own tenant so that their data is not getting somewhere else, which I think is brilliant because they do see this battle for dominance over who has the best model. Right. And I don't think it's going to be a one size fits all. I think you'll have a general model that is sort of like this interface to everything and then some sort of segregation of company data running within another model. So I absolutely see the value there. That's not the final level of security. It's then having a classification model that you then enforce to say, this data mm -hmm. can't show up in Jeff's um, AI question. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and it's Copilot, right? He doesn't need to know all the secret HR data. Yeah, right. and obviously identity controls are going to be needed to separate what bits in which model I yeah. can manipulate or see. Yes. Well, the other big investment we've been making for a very long time is responsible AI. So it's not just a matter of, you know, creating the robot robots and letting them march on the village, right? <laughs> we have for a very long time been looking at where the guard guardrails need to be so that this technology can be safely de deployed and, you know, oversight, you have to have oversight. So all of those things have to work together before the business tool becomes the accelerator we know it can be. How often do you use AI? Well, you know, the funny thing is I took a photography course mm. a couple of weeks ago. And so not tech, not geeky, anything. And the instructor just on a whim opened up Adobe Photoshop, mm -hmm. highlighted a, a circle on the top of a building and said, remove the crane. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Firefly and Sensei are pretty amazing. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, that's. I think that um, in daily life, that is that kind of value is going to change how people use it. Um, I certainly use it uh, at work a little bit, and I think that will grow quite a bit. Yeah, I think it's still. I mean, I use it quite a bit for a variety of things. Ever kind of everywhere. Right. It's a good starting point if you're starting something. It still will hallucinate, which is a friendly term for straight up lie <laughs> uh, of information, you know, that comes through. So I still think that there is, you still need to know your subject. I don't know if I would trust it to really go down a path of learning something. It's probably good to a certain degree. And then it starts kind right. of going off the rails. I'm sure that'll get better over time, kind of figure that out. Yeah. But I use it for a variety of things. I use it for work. I use it for this podcast. It helps with things like show notes and audio editing 
And there's just so many different things that it's going to be interesting to see how this is going to roll through the next five years. I think it's going to be crazy. I mean, we have enough audio at this point where, you know, I've toyed with making an episode with Jim and I using nothing, just a script. I have enough audio to train, you know, a voice to sound Right. And all of our close. subscribers start unsubscribing. <laughs> right. But I think this is something you're going to see is this. It's almost like, you know, you see a lot of like articles that were like, it was generated by AI and they're of varying quality and big news organizations have started to adopt this where they say, okay, well, we can't possibly cover every high school sports game in the world. So they have AI write some little blurb about some data that was fed to it by something. Right. I think you're going to see that with video with audio where it's like, oh, I have this idea for a thing, you know, create a YouTube video that talks about this. And yep. next thing you know, you're watching this thing. Well, it's, no human. it's interesting. I'm, I'm on the program committee for a couple of the different identity conferences. And at least right now, and it may not last very long, there are a certain percentage of the abstracts that come might be wrong. I mean, I might be, it might be that the, that I'm only identifying a fraction of the one, like some of them might be so well-written that I can't even tell. And if so, more power t to everyone, right? But uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting certain thing where you get an abstract that talks about things and uses all the right terms, they're, but they're not actually related to each other in a way that would make sense to a rational human being. I like the keyword rational human being. Um, you spent a lot of time with us here. We definitely appreciate it. We hope you'll come back, but we want to end on a lighter note. Um, we kind of talked about some different ideas before we hit record. You mentioned that you're in the process of renovate, renovating a Victorian home. Uh, and it sounds like you've been doing that for a while. Yes. And maybe will be doing that for a while. Yes. What is the thing that you discovered that you just weren't prepared for? <laughs> when you started this journey? Well, uh, so, yes, we have a, a San Francisco Victorian home. It was built in uh, 1891, if I remember correctly. 1891. Yeah. Wow. And so the, I think the thing that surprised me the most, which kind of tells what kind of IQ I have, but uh, I, all of the trim in the house is redwood, first growth redwood. They were mowing down the redwood trees and to build these homes back then. And I, it was my job to strip all the paint off of the trim. And I had the worst time because there, you know, there's a lot of paint that you mm -hmm. can apply to this yeah, stuff. And it's all it? different chemical makeups <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. And so I, you know, I started with the eco-friendly <laughs> paint trim, uh, paint uh, dissolver, that did not work. And I tried every single thing. And finally I figured out the heat gun was the way to go. And so I spent two years I'm not even kidding, two years stripping off. Not once did I think that maybe there could be lead in that paint. Uh -huh. Not once. Until uh, my husband's daughter showed up one day and she said, you know, should you check? <laughs> and, and we were almost done. I mean, I had been breathing those mm -hmm. fumes for, for two years at that time. And then we freaked out. We freaked out. We didn't touch it for four months. We went in with hazmat suits oh, gosh. <laughs> to finish the last pieces mm -hmm. of it. So yeah, not my finest moment. So there's a chance that you may actually glow in the dark. It's possible. <laughs> it is possible. We did test it after the fact and there wasn't very much light. Well, one of the greatest things when you do an older house, so my mother bought an older house when I was a young teenager 
and you peel back the carpet like this hardwood floor is there, and you're like, who put a carpet over this? But you just feel like you just discovered, found gold. Yeah, it's such a wonderful feeling. We preserved as much as we could, and um, we tried to stick with the same feel. But now we're we've finished the inside, and now we're trying to do the outside, and that involves recreating corbels and recreating trim and it's really nerve-wracking because we don't know if we're going to do it justice or not. Now Pam, I didn't know you were a Calgary native and I was in Calgary last weekend and went to Banff for the weekend and one of the greatest places I've ever been. But you know, you must have some fond memories. So what is your fondest Banff memory. Oh, gosh. Uh, yeah, I, I misspent my youth in Banff. Um, I'm not sure it's my fondest memory, but one of my strongest memories is actually probably the trip I had where I, we were mountain climbing, uh, climbing a mountain called Mount Yamnuska. I don't know if you saw that. It's on the, way in, uh, on the way to Banff. And I fell off, and I broke my ankle in two places. I broke the uh, tibia and... Wait, tibia Chibium, and... Chibium. and yeah, something like that. Uh, anyways, I got helicoptered off the mountain. And so I have this huge memory uh, that the helicopter couldn't land. Um, and, you know, we had climbers came from all over the mountain. It's an amazing thing, that that whole community, because um, it was way back. It was 1996. It was a long time ago. And so there weren't just cell phones you could call on. And so uh, and we didn't have cell service up on the mountain. And so probably 20 different climbers gave up their climbs that day. Uh, because they ran a uh, um, relay down the mountain. So the people at the top turned around. They were just coming to the top. They turned around. They ran down till they met the next climbers. I said, somebody's in trouble, get an ambulance. And then those people turned around. They ran to the next people. And so they did this crazy relay down just to be able to call the air ambulance to pick me up. And then they couldn't land the, the um, helicopter on the apron. So they attached me to a stretcher that was hanging below the helicopter and on a beautiful, beautiful day, I got flown over the valley. Uh, and that was great. I, you know, I was a little preoccupied at the time, but my climbing partner, um, they had to, you know, they sort of sent me in the stretcher with one attendant and there was another attendant there. And so they actually let my climbing partner clip his harness into the rope. And so he flew over the valley suspended on his climbing harness, just underneath the helicopter. And so he got to the hospital and I'm groggy and I'm in pain and all of this. And he gets to the, to the bedside. He's like, Pam, I'm so sorry this happened to me or to you, but that was the best experience <laughs> of my whole life. His fondest memory, exactly. not yours. Exactly. I was gonna say like, people probably had Banff on their bucket list. You just gave you that, that is your fondest story. And they're just like, nah, never oh, no, mind. There's so much more. I mean, Emerald Lake, for example, if you go a little bit farther past Banff, is something you'll never forget if you go. Lake Louise. Lake we, Louise. We got all the way up there and the parking lot was full. But my funny story was we were going through the town and there was a place that sold bear spray, twelve ninety five, And we just thought, ah, we don't need that. And we told, we, I was there with my girlfriend, Denise, and we started to say, yeah, if we get killed by a bear, the story will go, they're too cheap to buy twelve ninety five worth of bear spray. They kind of had it coming. Right. Yeah, we did have, um, definitely had some bear 
encounters. But generally speaking, if you leave them alone, they usually leave you alone. We're talking about brown bears, black bears. Oh, yeah, very different. So yeah. a brown bear, you can scare away unless it's really, 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 really hungry. And so if, if a brown bear starts to follow you, it probably wants to eat you. So there's, it is really important to know the difference. Whereas a grizzly bear will charge you if it feels threatened and you can play dead. But if a brown bear charges you, it, you know, if you play dead, you're kind of just offering yourself up as a snake. Yeah, I saw Revenant. That didn't work. <laughs> um, Pam, you've been really just with your time, and I'm really glad we were able to get this conversation in. Long time coming, long overdue. I hope you'll come back. Um, any final thoughts before we wrap up? Uh, no, only that I'm really glad you exist in this industry. It matters a lot. Thank you. I'm happy I exist, too, and I'm sure Jim is, too. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we'll go ahead and leave it there for this week. You can find us on the web at IDACpodcast.com. We're on Twitter or X or whatever at IDAC Podcast. We're on Mastodon at IDAC Podcast at infosec.exchange. We'll have links in our show notes. You can connect with Pam, ourselves, uh, whoever you like. Subscribe, like, thumbs up, review, whatever Five it is. Stars. Yeah, that's, that's all stuff that helps us um, get great guests like Pam. And hopefully we get more. So we'll leave it there. Thanks everyone for listening. And we'll talk with everyone in the next. You've been listening to Identity at the Center. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit the website at identityatthecenter.com and find us on Twitter at IDAC Podcast. See you next time on Identity at the center.